Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about Daily Daf Differently, please visit jcastnetwork.org slash ddd. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to the Daily Daf Differently. I am Daniel Nevins, and today we will be studying Tractate Yoma, page 8a and b. Most people know that Jewish law does not permit tattoos, but why not? First, they were associated with ancient idolatry. Second, the human body is believed to be on loan from God, and we are not supposed to make permanent modifications to it. Still, today tattoos have become extremely popular, including among Jews, some of whom go so far as to ink the divine name into their skin. While their intentions may be admirable, such people will face an additional halachic problem to their skin art. Our text, Yoma 8a, cites an ancient tradition about someone who had a divine name written on his skin, not a permanent tattoo, but just some ink writing. V'hatanya, haresha hayashem katuv al basaro. Did we not learn in a brighta that one who had a name written on his skin, such a person may not wash, nor anoint with oil, nor may he stand in a place of filth. If he had to go and immerse in a mikvah for a mitzvah, then he can put some sort of a bandage over his skin and immerse. Rabbi Yossi Omer Yored Vitovel Kedarko. Rabbi Yossi says, No, let him just go in naked, the normal way. Ovilvad Shalo Yeshaf Shef, but he shouldn't scrub on the skin. This source says that he may not wash his skin because it is forbidden to erase a divine name, nor may he anoint it with oil for the same reason. And he may not enter a toilet because the divine name should never be exposed to tinofit or filth. For the same reason, we do not bring tefillin or sacred books into the restroom. If this man must immerse in the mikvah for ritual purposes for a mitzvah, he must cover the writing, since it is forbidden to erase a divine name. Or at the least, he should not scrub it clean, according to Rabbi Yossi. So, if you want to tattoo the divine name on your skin, you better plan never again to wash or to relieve yourself. Good luck with that. Now, the main business of 8a and b is the comparison that was made earlier between the seven-day preparation of a high priest for Yom Kippur and the seven-day preparation made by a regular priest to participate in the red heifer ritual. Each of them spent the week in a sort of sacred spa, getting sprinkled with holy water and immersing in the mikvah at least twice. The sages here want to understand the commonalities and the differences between the two rituals. The red heifer merits daily sprinklings, but for Yom Kippur, the high priest gets splashed only on days three and seven. Why? One distinction is that the week of Yom Kippur is determined by the calendar. The priest will always begin his preparations on the third of Tishrei, 
Whereas the red heifer preparations happen at the discretion of the temple or of the sages. Another distinction is that the high priest for Yom Kippur is focused on Kiddushah, sanctification, whereas the red heifer ritual is all about tahara or purification. The high priest, for example, can get visitors from his fellow priests, since his own public ritual does not require the highest level of purity, as we established previously. One final text for today. On 8b, the Gemara returns to the first mission of the tractate, which used a Greek loanword to describe the chamber where the high priest spent his week of preparations. The priest was taken to Lishkat Parhedrin. Why was it called that? And don't we have a Brita in the name of Rabbi Yehuda that claims that the priest stayed in a Lishkat Balvate? Why does the Mishnah call it Lishkat Parhedrin? What are these Greek words, anyway? Parhedrin apparently refers to appointees, such as tax collectors, who are given a 12-month sinecure by the government to collect funds for the colonial officials. Balvate, the other term, refers to elected officials, such as city council members. The Bavli resolves the shift in nomenclature by citing a tradition from Yerushalmi Yoma. In the beginning, they claim, the chambers for the high priest were referred to respectfully as the council chamber, or Lishkat Balvate. But during Roman times, the office of high priest became corrupted, and priests would purchase the office for terms of 12 months from the Roman government. The high priest became just another political appointee, like a tax collector, and the rabbis thus used a somewhat disparaging term in the Mishnah to refer to their quarters. Balvate becomes parhedrin, and councilmen become tax collectors. We will continue this conversation tomorrow, but for now, let's conclude with a med meditation on the privilege and perils of religious leadership. To be recognized as a religious leader is an enormous privilege, but it often comes at a price. An ambitious priest, or for that matter rabbi or even lay leader, of the Jewish community may have to assert him or herself as a candidate for the office. Yet, if the community comes to think that his or her qualifications are suspect, then the office itself can become degraded. For the sake of the community and for the religious ideals and faith that it upholds, religious officials must conduct themselves with dignity, with humility, and always with great integrity. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently, and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the opening and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epic Horus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.